Good morning to all of you. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. My name is Amy Winkle. I am the interim associate priest here at Emmanuel. Um, and I'm just grateful for the season we've been walking through um, of Epiphany. So as Micah mentioned, this is our last Sunday of Epiphany um, that we have been walking through. And Ash Wednesday, uh, this Wednesday, is the beginning of Lent. Um, Lent is a 40-day journey into the wilderness with Jesus that calls us to repentance, to fasting, and to reflection. It's a time of stripping away the things that distract us from the Lord, and also a time of picking up practices that make us even more receptive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So through fasting, we intentionally lay something down for the duration of the 40 days of Lent. Now, while fasting can be an individual practice, and it is, it also can be a communal practice. And so we are inviting the church community to join together in fasting Um, together, like to do it as a communal practice. And if you so choose to do so, what we would invite you to do um, is to fast from sweets and alcohol throughout the week and then from meat on Fridays. Um, And so that's like, if that's an invitation that you want to answer, then we we, um, invite you to do so. It's a way that we can kind of join in this fasting season together. On Sundays, we'll break from our fasting as a reminder that um, Easter is coming. And so um, that's that's something we get to do as well and get to to come and, and worship together on Sundays. So in addition, what we're also doing, so that's the fasting part, the laying things down, but then there's also the picking things up, picking up these spiritual practices. Um, And so what we're going to do actually during the time of Lent is to step away from the lectionary and actually spend our time on Sundays talking about different spiritual practices um, when, when we gather together. So things like prayer and study and service and other practices that we get to do. Um, as a way of like kind of really living into this season to say we don't just lay things down, but we also pick things up as a way to um, feel the presence and experience the presence of God in our lives. So John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement, but actually was Anglican, just want to say, his whole entire life. So we claim him um, as our own. Um, He talked about spiritual disciplines as a means of grace. And this language has always been really helpful for me as a way to understand that the practices aren't there just in and of themselves. It's not a way that we um, can just like do disciplines in a way to find favor with God. But it's actually, they're actually conduits. They're actually ways we put ourselves into God's presence so that we can, through them, we can receive the grace of God. That it is ways that, um, that we can kind of put ourselves in a posture to be able to receive what the Lord is doing in our lives. But it is actually the work of God who is doing transform, the transformation in us, not us. But we are participating with God in that by putting ourselves in a place where we can receive from him. So it feels timely that we're going to step intentionally into focusing on the spiritual disciplines after we've been spending these weeks in Epiphany on the, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, the call of Jesus um, to this life with him and what it means to be citizens of heaven, that that cannot happen outside of the transformation of our inner being. And this is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, that it's not just about our behaviors and what we're doing, but actually that God wants to transform us from the inside out. And that that looks like cooperation on our side, a life of submission and rhythm that plays itself out in spiritual practices. So it's like we've kind of been laying the groundwork these last couple of weeks of talking about this like change in our inner life. And now we're actually going to start to practice it together as we walk into Lent. And so that I hope that, um, you know, this is like fertile ground for all of us, right? Just like the Lord 
plowing um, in our inner being in a way that is fruitful, that he can bring about the change that he wants to see in us. So with that said, we're going to pick up in Matthew 5 where we left off last week. So Jesus is on the mountain instructing his disciples in the crowd about the kind of people that they are and that we are called to be. And we saw last week Jesus turn his attention to the law and the prophets. And he had this repeated refrain of, you have heard it said, this particular law from the Old Testament, but I say to you this. So Jesus continues this refrain in our passage for today and continues to expound upon the law. He's kind of fine-tuning it, but even more so, he's inaugurating this new covenant that is meant to be internalized, that's meant to be written on our hearts, that it's not just about the behaviors only, but the actual inner life of, our, of the person, being changed and being made new people, free people. So let's look at the passage for today together. We're going to read Matthew 5. Chapter, or verses 38 to 48. So here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so there are two parts of the law that Jesus is addressing in this passage. The first one is the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? So this part of the law comes from Exodus 21. It's a section of the law on personal injury that gives a detailed description of how to account for and to make reparation for injury or death. The thought behind this in the law in, in Exodus is to inhibit revenge that would seek more punishment than is what is just in these situations, to kind of to keep it fair, basically, by laying out a process by which an injury can be acknowledged and addressed. So we could think of this in terms of our own justice system when we talk about having a just punishment that fits the crime. I think that's what this is talking about here as a way of saying, okay, here's what's happened, and then here's what the punishment or the reparation would be to make repair, but to try to keep it in like a fair system where it's not, there's not more revenge that is um, sought than should be. And so that's kind of the, the spirit behind the law in the Old Testament. But I also think it's about power, keeping the power dynamic equal. This idea that, okay, now we're all square. One person doesn't have one more power over the other, but instead, like, we're kind of, we're even, right? But Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If one, someone sues you for your coat, give them your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two instead. Now, we hear this, and it sounds nice or noble, 
But, I mean, we don't really want to do that, right? More specifically, I don't want to do that. I mean, why when in the world would Jesus ask us to be this vulnerable? I think what he's doing is he's telling us something about the kingdom of God and about power. Instead of trying to keep power equal or square, it's actually about subverting the power of this world altogether by being something radically different and therefore being free. So now let's stop and let's think about this for a minute. If someone slaps me across the face, I can choose to do, like I can choose to respond in different ways, right? I could punch their lights out. That would be one way to respond. Or I could like shrink back and like feel defeated and just like walk away and and be dejected. Or Jesus says, you can stand, we can stand there and say, you can hit me on the other cheek as well. Do you feel the shift of power in that? When Jesus says, if someone's trying to sue you for your, for your coat and you give them your cloak as well, there's a shift of power there, right? To say, you don't have power over me. I get to choose how I'm going to respond in this moment. And so when we, because when we know who we are in Christ, that, that is more powerful than the power of this world, And therefore, because we belong to Christ, the power structures of this world lose their influence, lose their ability to control us or demean us. Because I am known and loved by my heavenly Father, I can respond differently. I can choose not to have to level the playing field or to balance out power. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Now, I heard um, quoted from a a prominent uh, political figure of our day recently, him saying something to the effect of, to a group of Christians, that whole idea of turning the other cheek, Christians don't really need to do that anymore because that's a sign of weakness that's old and tired. Now, for us as Christians, when we hear that, we need to be deeply disturbed because we're missing out on what is actually at play here, what's really actually happening, that we are not called to grasp at power but instead to subvert the the power of this world and to understand who we are in the kingdom of God. So N.T. Wright says this. He says, Jesus offers a new sort of justice, a creative, healing, restorative justice. The old justice found in the Bible was designed to prevent revenge running away with itself. Better an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth than an escalating feud with each side going one worse than the other. But Jesus goes one better still. Better to have no vengeance at all, but rather a creative way forward, reflecting the astonishingly patient love of God himself, who wants Israel to shine his light into the world so that all people will see that he is the one true God and that his deepest nature of overflowing love. So this is basically asking, Jesus is asking us to follow the way that he has set out before us that he has actually walked himself, who knowing his identity and seeing the reality of the kingdom, he could stand in front of the powerful leaders of his day and not have to plead his case, not have to defend himself, not have to beg for his life because he knew who he was and that true power lay in the kingdom of God. We are taught to resist vulnerability in this world because it's seen as weakness, And then, because you can be taken advantage of, right? 
But what if power really rests in vulnerability? What if knowing who we are and who we are not is really what leads to freedom? Not having to pretend to be something else, but knowing that we need help from Jesus, that we can't do this on our own, that we are children in the kingdom of God, and that that is not a way into captivity, but instead a way, um, the way of freedom. So then we begin to reflect on the reality of God's kingdom. And so Jesus continues on by saying, give anyone who begs from you, give to, give, sorry, give to anyone who begs from you and let anyone borrow from you. Again, this is a picture of vulnerability, right? To like be asked for something and then to give it away. And yet, it's also a sign of generosity. Living this way reveals the generosity and the abundance of the kingdom, If I know that there is abundance and not scarcity, I don't have to hoard my resources. I don't have to worry about not having enough. I can be generous because I belong to my Father in heaven whose kingdom is not about scarcity and getting all that you can, but actually about abundance and about being able to give it away. So I don't know if you've heard on the news recently this um, what's happening at Asbury University. Um, My husband and I, our alums of uh, the seminary, Asbury Seminary, which is across the street. Um, And so we lived in Wilmore for four years. So we've been paying attention to what's happening there. But if you've seen, there's a discussion of like this revival or outpouring of the spirit that's happening right now at Asbury University. So what happened is, I'll give you a little bit of backstory, is um, two Wednesdays ago, they had chapel like normal. Um, According to people who were there, there wasn't necessarily anything different that the pastor or the, who, was te- who was preaching that day said. It wasn't like a big call, like altar call or anything like that. It was just kind of a, a normal chapel service. But afterward, a couple of students stayed behind to pray, and a couple of others stayed behind to worship. Again, this was not out of the ordinary. They did this on a regular basis. But something happened on that day, two weeks ago. The Holy Spirit um, appeared or came or, you know, was descended into that space in a way that was unique and different that they hadn't experienced before. And what happened in the midst of that was that these students started praying and repenting before the Lord. And what, and then it just kind of kept going and word started to spread around campus and then more students started coming in and they have not stopped worshiping and praying since since two Wednesdays ago. It's just continued. Now, what's really interesting to me about this is when you hear what people who are there are saying, who are in the room are saying about it, is that it's not necessarily like a demonstrative kind of of thing that's happening. Instead, they describe this, this unimaginable peace that has fallen into this place. And that there is a, the words that they use, a radical humility before the Lord. And there's repentance that's happening and there's healing that's happening and reconciliation that's going on that these students' lives are being changed. And this is starting to spread. Like it's gone from the university across the street to to the seminary and now it's going out into other places and some people are kind of coming to join in with it. But I wanted to share um, one account that we heard from a friend from a couple of days ago. He says this, The night before last, a student from Brazil came to stage to offer a testimony. He had recently graduated. In his sharing, he mentioned how much Jesus had been moving in his life. 
He remarked how lost he felt as a graduate, alone, no family, and now out from college, and he had he'd been unable to get a job. He spoke of how discouraged he had been, and then this happened, and how he had been drawn to return to the campus, and how Jesus was meeting him here. It was a precious sharing, as riveting as it was unspectacular and humble. He then led a prayer for Brazil in Portuguese, as heartfelt as I have ever heard a prayer, and yet I couldn't understand a word. As he was finishing, someone from the balcony shouted his name and tossed something onto the stage. It was money. Suddenly, people began to run from the crowd toward the stage, all bringing money and putting it on the stage. Some tossed stacks of money into the air around the stage like confetti as it fell. I have never witnessed the kind of spontaneous generosity, true fruit of the Spirit, instantaneously. It was overwhelming. It also happened the same way in the multiple sites across town where the meeting was being simulcast. We have no idea of the amount of money, but it had to be a lot. I had the sense of Peter and James and John hauling in those boatloads of fish, tearing the nets, and almost sinking the boats. A picture of the generosity and the abundance of the kingdom. When we think that we're all alone like like this guy did, but we're really not. When we think we're left to take care of ourselves, but it's really a lie from the enemy of our souls. When we think that God doesn't see us or care for us, but we're wrong, he really does. This idea of the kingdom leads us into the second thing that Jesus says about the law. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Basically, Jesus says that when we love and when we pray for our enemies, we are reflecting the character of God, our Father in heaven. Loving your neighbor and hating your enemy is no different than anyone else. But citizens of heaven, children of the Father, reflect his character and therefore can trust him to be there for us, to go before us. Paul says in Romans 12, 17 through 21, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what Jesus is saying to us about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. But what this doesn't mean is just kind of rolling with it and acting like nothing ever happened and moving on. What it means is that we're taking our offenses, those things that have happened to us, into the throne room of God and laying them at his feet and trusting him to know what to do with them, trusting him to be able to, 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 work in our lives to bring about the healing that we need rather than us having to find ways to exact justice ourselves. We see David do this all the time in the Psalms, right? We see David talking about his enemies all the time, pouring out his heart to God to say, what am I supposed to do, Lord? What am I meant to do? As a way of keeping himself open to the work of God in his life, but not having to seek revenge himself. And so that he could work out forgiveness and allow the Lord to work out forgiveness in his heart. 
There's an author, uh, her name is Edith Eager. She wrote a book called The Gift. She wrote, also wrote a book called The Choice. She was a Holocaust survivor. And so she, in the first book, she talks about her, it's like her autobiography. The second one is stories from her life as a therapist after the fact. But there's one um, chapter in her book that's called, called The Gift that's called There's No Forgiveness Without Rage, which I think is just such an interesting thought, right? That it's not that when we're hurt or when someone comes against us or hurts us that we're meant to just let it roll off our back because we're human, right? There is rage that comes with that. But what do we do with that rage? We take it to the Lord and let him work in our life so that forgiveness can come. So when we kind of step back from this and, and think about what Jesus is saying, there's an image that comes to my mind of what I think he's calling us to do, to be people of God, to be the, the citizens of heaven that he's calling us to be. It's this idea of having like two feet planted on the ground, right? That we're living in the reality of this world. We're not trying to escape it. We're not trying to deny the pain and the hurt that we feel. So we have two feet on the ground, but we also have our mind and our heart on the kingdom of, kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That we know that there is a, a reality outside of this world, outside of ourselves. The true reality of the kingdom of God that God is calling us to, calling us to live into even in the here and now. And so we look to Jesus who has walked this road before us, who says, look, I know the way. Like I've been this way before. Let me show you the way home, the way to freedom. Because what's happening in the pages of the New Testament is this idea of a new exodus, this, this way out of bondage, out of slavery into freedom. So can we imagine living lives that look different from this world, that truly have the marks of the kingdom on them? And I think that is our invitation as we walk into Lent together on Wednesday, to have our hearts open to God, to what he wants to do in us, that we're, being, that we're ready to repent and ask for help, that we're ready to admit that we can't do this on our own, but our longing is for the kingdom of God to be made real in our midst. And that what we really truly want is to follow Jesus home. And so as we step into this Lenten season, that is our prayer, right? To ask God to really do the work that he needs to do in us. To, to be will, for us to be willing to lay these things that ensnare us in front of him. These hurts that we feel. These things that, that are holding us back. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe there's a lot of things there that we need to put before the Lord. But this is the invitation we have before us as we walk into Lent, to strip those things away. Those things that maybe we've been holding onto that we haven't been willing to let go of yet, Jesus says, now is the time. The time has come. He wants to take them from us. We're not meant to carry them on our own. And so I pray as we step into this season of Lent that we would be willing to open our hearts and be vulnerable with the Lord be willing to let him see those things that feel scary, that feel like there's not really a way forward, that we'd be willing to, to hand those to him and see what he would do with those. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.